This is Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to BR Football Ranks, and the Bundesliga is back. Hello and welcome to BR Football Ranks, your favourite football podcast and football is back to podcast on. My name is Jack Collins and I will be your host today and joining me, Mr. Reliable, Sam Ty. Yeah, always reliable. Haven't had any kids recently, so no paternity leave to lean on. Shame on you, Dean. No, seriously. Uh, week old today, Dean's new baby, Reese. So happy one week, Teresa. Thoughts with the family. So glad everything's going well for you guys. And everything's great for us too, by the way, because football's back. I guess Dean didn't manage to watch any because he's too busy with his newborn. But we at least had something to talk about and watch for the first time in, oh, a long, uh, six weeks, uh, two months? Yeah, eight weeks, two months. It's been, it's been difficult. There's been ups and downs. But, and it wasn't perfect, Sam. But did you enjoy having football to watch again? Yes, massively. I did. I watched five games, which probably tells you that I, uh, I at least I liked it a little bit. Um, obviously, the 2.30 kickoff in, in Germany, the first game of the day was going to be Schalke against Dortmund. Everybody was going to watch that. Hundreds of thousands of people in each country did. Uh, look, that, that worked out pretty well. So thought I'd give Eintracht Frankfurt Gladbach a go. That was pretty good. So next day, roll back around for Cologne Mainz into Union Berlin versus Bayern Munich. And then Monday night, how could you possibly miss Werder Bremen against Leverkusen? So those are all the games that I watched. I'm going to guess, Jack, that you watched all those too. I did indeed, uh, with the uh, addition of Greuther Firth versus Hamburg in the German uh, second tier, which was the 12 o'clock game uh, on Sunday, which was exceptionally entertaining. It was a 95th minute equaliser for Greuther to deny the three points to Hamburg. Obviously, the once great Hamburg, or formerly of the Bundesliga, uh, and one point, the last club never to be relegated, but they now apply their tried in the second tier. So it's been a good weekend of football. There was a lot of goals. There was a lot of fun. There was a lot of entertainment. Uh, and even the nil-nil, having watched back the extended highlights, a lot going on in that game. So, I mean, look, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the, the things you took out of the games and any kind of big takeaways. That's what this podcast is, episode is going to be about. And we're going to be joined by German football expert James Thorogood to talk those through in detail. Um, but just before we go on to next week's games, what you're looking forward to, you raised a really good point earlier about the way that this week pans out is actually really crucial. Yeah, so obviously the, 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 the German Football Federation have done an extremely good job of getting one week of football onto our screens. It's an incredibly sanitised week of football where players were quarantined they weren't allowed to go near each other training's been difficult you're not allowed to touch each other in celebrations you have to get tested constantly you're not allowed out of your team hotel if you're the away side like it's been very thorough and that's that's been absolutely necessary now this week the week we're currently in so you'll listen to this on a wednesday the players that played at the weekend all got tested for covid19 on monday and they will be tested again on friday and placed in a one-day quarantine ahead of the next weekend of fixtures they don't have to stay in quarantine the whole week they're allowed to go see their family their friends a lot of these players are with their family and friends right now that wasn't the case before so now this is the critical bit because if the tests on friday start coming back positive if these players re-enter society and then and then bring something back in like this could all crumble down like we, we could have a, it could be a one and done and the Bundesliga have got a, a hard stop date of, of at the end of June that's when the broadcasting deal finishes that's when they have to do this by and 
if players start coming back and testing positive ahead of this weekend's fixtures and things go really bad, then they may have to make another decision, be it voiding, be it cancelling it, be it finishing where it stands. I don't know. But this is the critical week. Like, in a way, the first week was easier because the second week you have to let them you know, fly the nest and go and see their things, family. Yeah. yeah, and now we will really see how well this virus can be contained with these players re-entering society. And if on Friday it goes wrong, that could spell the end for all of it. If it goes right, we're probably going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, let's work from a positive mindset. Let's work from a, a positive attitude going forward. Let's imagine that everything is cushy and that the games are going on this weekend. What are you looking forward to? So typically speaking, in a normal scenario, I would be really, really pumped for the Berlin derby on Friday, Hertha Berlin against Union Berlin. But I'm not really that excited for that. Well, I'll watch it because it's the only game happening on Friday, right? And I'm not doing anything else. But I'm not as excited for that because it doesn't have the, the crowd factor that you would usually associate with the derby. And Union Berlin just aren't that good to watch. We saw that on Sunday and we knew that beforehand anyway. So I guess we draw the focus to Saturday, and that's Borussia Mönchengladbach and against Bayer Leverkusen, the one I'm most excited for. Two of the three best teams from the weekend, I think, with Dortmund being that third one. So the clash of these two attacking styles is going to be incredible. And at the same time, sadly, but I'll probably watch it again later, Wolfsburg against Dortmund. That's two, two of the best six or seven teams in this league. And Dortmund, with such an impressive performance on Saturday against Schalke, doesn't look like quarantine has affected them at all, hasn't busted their rhythm in any way I'll be excited for that one too so I think Saturday is the day for the Bundesliga yeah absolutely it's one of those like obviously before this whole break was enforced we were on the cusp of starting our own football watch club if you will it was going to be called ranks football club it was going to be like a book club but with games to watch and you go live with us to watch those games given the circumstances we've decided to try and one-up it so this weekend, all things going to plan. Sam and I are going to be commentating on Gladbach against Leverkusen live. We're going to use an app called Hot Mic. It's an app you basically log in, you find, you will send all the codes out on our socials on Friday and Saturday. Uh, you log in and you sync it up to your TV. It's very simple. And then you listen to us talking about the game at the same speed that you're watching it at. So it's all unbelievably clever. The technology is well, well, well above what I understand, but it makes a, a, you know, a very, very good job. Uh, and we're going to have a go at, at making things work, Sam. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, we've been doing these, these FIFA commentaries uh, you know, for YouTube. Uh, for these compilations and stuff, which it, it just felt normal and natural to to take our controls to the next level. Um, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. When Jack suggested this the other day, I was like, "Wow, that's it's very different." But why the hell not? Like, why not? Why not give that a go? And you know, in England specifically, so it doesn't apply to everybody. But the commentary, specifically the co-commentary on these Bundesliga games, was really disappointing, and it, it sucked an element of joy out of an occasion that really actually needed 10% more, not 50% less. So I guess in a way, I'm just kind of actively trying to, to 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 correct that. And if anybody is interested in uh, in listening to Jack and I talk about Gladbach and Leverkusen, which to be fair, you do every Wednesday anyway on the podcast, <laughs> then join join us at the weekend uh, and and hear us waffle through it. I think it could be a lot of fun. We'll be sending out the details slightly close to the time. Keep an eye on our Twitters and our Instagrams and uh, we will put you in the right direction. Right, I think that's enough about next weekend. 
let's pull things back to what we've just seen. And we're going to bring in James Thorogood, who is a Bundesliga expert, works around the division, and we're going to be bringing him in to talk a little bit about what's just gone on. Welcome back to BR Football Ranks, where we are joined by Bundesliga commentator James Thorogood. James, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, an absolute pleasure, guys. Excellent. We're going to talk about five things we're taking away from this weekend. Um, so Sam's going to lead us along and uh, we're going to incite your expertise as we go along. So Sam, over to you and, and let's get this rolling. Yeah, five things we learned. Pretty typical uh, thing you might see on the internet and particularly on Bleach Report over the last decade or so. But it's, it's going to key in on what we saw from the Bundesliga, but try and try and extrapolate as much as we can, because ultimately what you saw this weekend is essentially what I think football is going to be like for the rest of the year. It, it, in the majority of countries, this is essentially how it's going to be. So we've got to get used to it. And we've also got to draw our lessons from it and see what we could learn and extrapolate out for other leagues as well. Every other league in the world is going to have been watching what happened, how what was the reaction, what was the perception. So it's such an important test case. Uh, so my five things are things that we learned. And <laughs> you can bet like the Premier League Chiefs are going to be looking out for this stuff as well. So we'll start with like, the obvious one, like football without fans. I think we learned that it's a bit weird, but still still enjoyable. And I don't know if this is because I've personally set my expectations a little bit lower. We certainly said uh, in the podcast last week uh, with, with, with Rob, you know, he said, I wonder if people are going to be a little bit disappointed. I was almost safeguarding myself there, but I was pleasantly surprised by basically just how much I enjoyed the football and was able to put the other bits aside, you know, no atmosphere, no fans, no noises. Well, you see, you hear some noises, but no, no crowd noises and things like that. And basically just able to put that aside quite easily, more easily than I thought, and just enjoy what I, what I love, which is football. And how did you feel as well commentating a game, you know, remotely and, and, and how it changed your job? Well, I have to say, I mean, this weekend as a football fan, you finally had an outlet. Um, and as a football commentator, I finally seemed like I had a purpose again, which was nice. Because um, <laughs> uh, it, got, it got a bit dicey there for a second. Uh, we didn't really know. And it was a privilege to be back on, on the mic this weekend. Now, I mean, I fell in love with the Bundesliga shortly after moving to Germany in 1997. But that's exactly why I was a bit torn this weekend, because the Bundesliga I fell in love with was not what we saw on display this weekend. And you did. You had to appreciate new aspects of the game uh, and some of the nuances that you normally wouldn't hear. And some of those were the sounds. You had some interesting sounds where I, as a commentator and a bit of a uh, someone that you know likes tactical uh, knowledge, um, I'm listening to the coaches and able to pick up some more of the instructions that you wouldn't normally get. And that was nice as a commentator to then be able to relay that to the audience as well. Um, so what we couldn't do it all Give us an example of that. Like, oh, it really was just quick movement, pressing, uh, calling for certain players to move in a certain time. Uh, the the uh, I mean, the shouts for half spaces was uh, happened a lot. And I'm sure there were a couple of interesting ones as well that were thrown out there that maybe we didn't catch throughout all of the games that were, I think it was Alfred uh, Schroeder, the uh, Hoffenheim head coach, who said he was going to come up with uh, you know, code words, essentially. It didn't work out for Hoffenheim on the weekend, unfortunately. But those are the types of things that, yeah, we're having to appreciate football in a different way. And it's not a bad way. It's an old school way. Uh, back to the roots was actually an English phrase used commonly in Germany this weekend, which I thought was very interesting in terms of them portraying what football is going to be like. And, and the fans, they, I mean, look, they play a significant role in the magic of German football. And they are, in Germany, one of the biggest selling points. I mean, fans will be missed worldwide, but I feel like they're definitely really missed in Germany uh, because of that reason. And so, uh, 
as one of their more prominent selling points and as part of the magic, there was no emotion. As a commentator, funnily enough, I mean, the fan, the fan in me missed the emotion as well, but the commentator, there was no wave to ride for me, uh, which was a really interesting thing this weekend. And uh, commentators often talk, I'll wrap this up quickly, uh, commentators often talk about fighting the crowns when they're in the stadium. And this weekend, it felt like you were fighting the fact that were no fans. And you couldn't quite go to your level 10 as a commentator for a really good goal. Um, and you kind of had to restrain yourself. So it was very interesting this weekend. But I, for one, was very glad football was back. The little touches Silence. and stuff. Silence you, is uh, deafening in many ways. Yeah, big time. The little touches you say, the little things we can appreciate more. I saw a few of those as well. And interesting to hear, like, you know, I can't understand German, so I don't know what the coaches are saying. But there's a little clip of uh, something that Jean-Claire Todivo said to Erling Haaland, which I cannot repeat on this podcast, but you feel free to go and look it up. And uh, you got every word of that. Some clubs in the Bundesliga did ask their players to tone down uh, the language. Not all of them did, but some of them did. Uh, I don't think Schalke did, or either that or uh, Jean-Claire just basically completely ignored that instruction. There was a really cool little exchange uh, in the Cologne-Mainz game uh, with the referee and John Cordova. So John Cordova, the striker, this Colombian guy, went down injured and the referee asked him in German if he would like the physio and there was no reply. So he asked him in English and there was no reply. So one of the coaches on the sideline shouted, try it in Spanish. And the referee replied, the only word I know in Spanish is cerveza for beer. And it's like, you, obviously you would never hear that ever. And it's just one of those little weird little interactions that you see and, 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 you, and, and gets reported on social media. And obviously that referee is just like the rest of us. We all only know one word in Spanish as well. And it's the same goddamn word. But you just get to hear those little bits. And actually that brightens up the game as well suddenly. I would have enjoyed yeah. if John Cordoba had been offered a beer by the <laughs> ref at that point. I would have been, that would have been what really made the exchange complete for me, I think. Oh, exactly. I mean, like, yeah, it, it was, it, that was Guido Vinkman uh, and Col- the Cologne game was actually the one that I commentated this weekend and turned out to be one of the more entertaining ones as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are exactly the types of things that we're going to have to get used to. And you're right, Sam, I'm in your camp as well. I think this may be the solution to the footballless vacuum that we had for a while. Um, and we are going to, and it's born of necessity as well. You know, no one wants this. It's not an ideal situation. All the clubs are talking about it. Christian Zeifert, the DFL president's talking about it too. No one wants this, but we are, yeah, as, as a result of what's going on and rightly so having to take very precautious measures to like get back to any sense of normality. And we got a touch of it this weekend, but things will not be complete until the fans are back. There is no doubt about that. James, earlier on, Sam and I were talking about the games that are going ahead this weekend or the weekend coming and we talked about the Berlin derby on Friday night and how you know with the Revia derby and the two teams in the top six and all of the drama that comes with that you know Dortmund in a title race Schalke in the Europa race it's kind of one of those things we all automatically tied into it anyway regardless of kind of what happens with the you know the amount that Union have been praised this year for the fans, for the authenticity, for the traditionalist values, and all of those things that we loved about it. You know, the scoreboard has taken on a life of its own at this point. But you know, the Berlin derby seems to be lacking something now. And obviously, we saw the reverse picture was absolute chaos, and we loved it, and it was fantastic. But there seems to be something about the Berlin derby now. We were a bit like, ah, oh, I kind of wish that wasn't the Friday night game because it kind of ramps everything up to a point where you're like this just isn't the same. 
there there is an element of that um and and you're not wrong about union because i mean they were one of those games this weekend that took place that i have no doubt the result and the game at the very least would have been very different had they had their fans there against bayern munich you know it just there's no doubt in my mind agree with you though i mean the berlin derby i think is a great way to kick off the weekend it's actually one of the two games i'm commentating this weekend so i've had the joy of the carnival derby last week with Köln and Mainz. i've got the berlin derby i also had the the real honor i thought it was actually of someone in of my age uh being a commentator here in germany i was given the first berlin derby earlier this season on match day 10 um and that was a striking one just because it was a week before the 30th anniversary of the fall of the berlin wall um and so that real had that had real significance and the problem is it's lost its significance a little bit this weekend because again and I mean, this is no disrespect to Hertha. And if there are any Hertha fans out there, I do apologize. But it would have been the one of the few times this season that that stadium would have been sold out. Absolutely. Um, but I think we've got a great weekend ahead. I really do. Sam, just chuck it to you. We'll, uh, we'll keep things moving. Yeah, on to the next one. And, and actually, we, we've touched on it a little bit there. Another takeaway is that um, teams that are fueled by home crowds and that require kind of injections of enthusiasm and uh, an atmosphere to, to really perform are going to struggle. It was, a, it was a working theory, Jack, that you had last week. And I think it proved true. And it's important not to try and extract too much from one set of games, particularly after a two-month break. But James, you just said, you know, Union Berlin against Bayern this weekend. Had Union's fans been there, it would have been a different scenario. And Bayern never really left first gear in that game. They didn't have to be very good to win that game. And Union were disappointing. It's because they didn't have that energy to draw on and to, to fuel them. And they weren't the only club in that scenario. I think Eintracht Frankfurt, who have an amazing, amazing atmosphere at home at the Comets Bank Arena, like they, they were looking for something to latch onto to get themselves back into that game against Gladbach because they were 2-0 down in no time at all. And they found they were grasping it at loose ends and nothing. And, and they just looked completely and utterly lost. And the game that you, you commentated on, Cologne against Mainz, like 2-0 up that should have been a win. And like, there's no way, in my opinion, that with a full stadium back in Cologne there, that they dropped that two goal lead. And it just seemed to me like what Jack had posited was just proved true. Teams that really, that rely on that emotion on a game day to get them through certain periods of games, not entire games, periods, are going to struggle. And I guess you could say like Dortmund were fine, but Dortmund are an unbelievably classy team. They're one of the 10, 12 best teams in the world that they have the technical quality to lift themselves above that deficit. Whereas the guys I mentioned, you know, Union, Frankfurt, Cologne, they don't have that and it's going to be more difficult for them as a result. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting trend. And yeah, you guys definitely hit the nail on the head with it. And it, it is an interesting one. I mean, Cologne was a great example. You're right. Although I will say, if you follow Cologne long enough you will know that they are a team that even with 50,000 fans behind them they are more than capable of throwing away a 2-0 lead and they have done many many times before bless them can snatch, um, can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory to subvert a phrase that's it I mean I, I said it on air with them their history has been full of highs and lows in the Bundesliga their season this season has been full of highs and lows already that game was the most authentic cone experience any new Bundesliga fans were looking for could ever have had um, and I think that was wonderful in in its you know kind of yeah, it's cone, cone way, uh, I guess is the way to put it. But you are right. I was also talking, I was, uh, my co-commentator on the day was Lutz Fanenstiel, the Fortuna Dusseldorf sporting director. And I brought up uh, the point to him that, you know, there's the, also uh, the flip side of it, that teams can really feel under pressure based on 
uh, their fan base turning on them. And I think maybe Frankfurt are a good example of that because their fans were starting to turn a little bit before uh, the hiatus, just because their form really had dropped. And I think you guys made uh, the point last week, but we've seen so many faces from Frank. They're the many faced god, if you want to put them that way, of the Bundesliga. In terms of one week they can beat Bayern 5 1, and the next week they can have an absolute shocker where Philip Kostic strangely is the only good player on the pitch for them sometimes. Um, and I never I never in my Bundesliga journalism career thought I'd ever say that when I saw him at Hamburg and Stuttgart, I'll be really honest. Um, <laughs> but it's true. It's so true right now. And so they were a team that I wondered whether actually it was a good thing their fans weren't there and weren't, weren't turning on them. But the problem was two early goals. Even with fans, that was going to be hard to turn I guess, But I, I think, think you've hit well. the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, this is something we can take to the, the wider football world as well. You, a lot like so based in England, obviously, all you hear every day is Premier League executives and chairmen squabbling and managers squabbling and talking about whether or not there can be a restart. And you see certain chief executives, chiefly really of the, the bottom six clubs, who are all actively against neutral venues or, you know, home home venue, but no crowd. And their point is that the teams towards the bottom like that, they like they really, really rely on reason they're better at home is because their fans get behind them. And you see, you see like basically it's 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 Aston Villa, it's Brighton, it's Watford. They're all against neutral venues and against empty stadiums for this reason. And now those chief executives can probably point to something approaching some evidence and be like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Now, it may not be admissible because it is just an observation, but this is what they mean by that. It's not just an empty phrasing. There was also something that got brought up in the German press that I'll add to that, which I thought was really interesting. It's something that I hadn't necessarily considered but the fact that there was a feeling amongst certain members of the German press this weekend that um, referees were less inclined to favour a home side purely based on not having yeah, the home fans on their back um, and not feeling under pressure. The players also thought it was interesting that they felt like they had more net time on the pitch, if you know what I mean, in terms of there were less stoppage. Five substitutions certainly helped in that respect. Um, and, and ultimately, these guys, I think you mentioned it uh, when Rob was on the show, that it's only going to take game time to have that match sharpness that they do need in these situations. And it's going to come. And there were some certainly rusty moments. Uh, Köln's defending was one of them uh, for Mainz's second goal. And it wasn't the only one this weekend either. No. They're going to brush off some cobwebs. There's no doubt about it. But the, the point about the referees not favouring the home sides, I thought was an interesting one that came up today. Yeah, I didn't consider that at all. Jack, did you foresee that one as well? No, I didn't. Um, although I guess it's just one of those things. I mean, I think the, the takeaway that I took from this and, and maybe to expand your point, Sam, even further is that teams who, are, who smash through transitions quickly, who are you know, able to free up space through a couple of interchanges are the ones that we've seen really, really excel this weekend. You look at Dortmund, you look at Gladbach, you look at Leverkusen, who are able to stretch the pitch with those interchanges, who are able to get you know, players on the ball to dominate possession, to be able to, you know, basically have the other team chasing shadows. And I thought it was more apparent more quickly than it usually is, because I think that you take out the kind of, the kind of people defending really stoutly or defending really well for like an extended period of time. It's something that, that lifts a crowd. You know, yeah. if you're continually forcing back an opposition who were on top of you, there's something about that kind of siege mentality that jumps in. And I think we didn't see any of that. And teams that were under pressure constantly, you look at Schalke in that first game, you know, just straight away, under pressure, under pressure, under pressure, gave. And yeah. it was the same with Bremen, who, you know, we, we, we've seen Verde do this time and time again this season. I, I understand that. But, 
it was the way that there was no sort of resilience. It was like when the break came, that was that. You know, obviously they, they equalised and then they concede straight away again. And it was like, at no point did I think that Leverkusen weren't going to win that game. Yeah. And, and, and maybe what I'd take from that is it's potentially not easier to predict because you can look at Leipzig and say, you know, how did Leipzig not win that game? And then very nearly, how did Leipzig not lose that game? But <laughs> ultimately, I think it's been easier to predict what happened this weekend than it normally is. You know, things by and large played out as they were expected to. And I thought that was maybe an interesting side event. There's no kind of, there's less subversion of the the expected. Of the odds. Yeah, the odds. Yeah, it's just like the quality tells more clearly and probably more quickly. Bayern Union Berlin was another example of that. Like Union couldn't, couldn't muster that second gear because they were trying... They, they usually feed off something else and Bayern didn't have to play particularly well. They just had to move the ball around really cleanly for 50 minutes and then their opponents just kind of collapsed. Now, part of that is fitness, obviously, but part of that is just that tangible quality probably probably shining through. And actually, the, if you, basically what we're saying there is it's kind of like an advantage to the, to the, to the better teams. And that kind of brings me on to my, my third point here, which is the, the five substitutes, which I also think is inherently an obvious advantage to the better teams because they have better benches. Um, and five subs is something we saw for the first time. It's something we're going to have to get used to. Um, going into the weekend, I thought, I'm going to have to get used to this. Coming out of the weekend, I think quite a lot of managers are going to have to get used to this as well. Um, I think it was Heidenheim uh, in the earlier kickoff in the, in the second division who were the first team to use five subs. And then in the Bundesliga, Schalke, 87th minute, Timo Becker came on. They used it in a double and three singles, so four separate substitution periods. Hertha Berlin and Paderborn also used five subs. Uh, Wolfsburg and Leipzig, by the way, still just used the three. Uh, so either they didn't get told the new rule or they hadn't figured out how memo. to implement it yet. Um, but it was, uh, it was certainly interesting. Na- Nagelsmann always does things his own way. <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cologne Mainz both used all five. Werder Bremen and Leverkusen both used all five as well. So... Different, yeah, different uh, kind of acceptings of that. I would say it was, um, it was, it was a mixed bag in terms of who did what. And there's actually quite a lot you can do with five subs that you can, if you can make them over four or five separate periods, not just the three as we thought it might be. Tactically, this brings uh, like a genuinely new element to the game. You could change an entire game plan twice, I think, in this game from from a from a certain point if you wanted to. If something wasn't going very well, and look, we saw like a triple sub at half-time in one of the games, which probably would not have happened if you didn't have two more to use later. And this is something for us to get used to because we're just stuck in our old ways. But over the course of the next, you know, six weeks or so, and, and whenever other leagues resume as well, like watch carefully for how managers start to use these subs and what patterns they start to utilise. Because I genuinely think this could be one of those underrated kind of tactical ploys that certain very clever managers that jump on board quickly could really use to their advantage. I'll be honest, a nightmare to keep track of. <laughs> at one point, you're right, in my game, I had five at once. And I was trying to figure out, you know, I've got my little player cards down on the table in front of me. So it's all right, who's coming off for who, who do I take off? I've got my producer in my ear going James do you think we've ever had five substitutes at once in the Bundesliga and I'm going <laughs> surely like I'm, I'm going off air quickly go surely it must have happened and it was like this back and forth it was this mad situation and by the end of it I, I think there was one substitute I completely missed and I just had to wait until it popped up on my on my stat provider but I mean that it was it is an interesting element and I think you're right Sam uh, there are going to be some managers uh, and head coaches as we call them in Germany that um, really will look to use that to their advantage and 
I mean, Nagelsmann's the one that I would expect to actually be the most innovative with it. But the fact that he restrained himself this weekend certainly surprised me as well, especially in their situation uh, and the way that game was going. Because, um, yeah, that I think you talk about Leipzig, the fact that that was an upset. And it's, it's an interesting thing to consider. Um, and, and Leipzig were also the team that were in training first, so it should have all gone their way. Bremen were in the team. I will say this, in their defence, they were the team to come into training last. Um, yeah. And so they had the shortest preparation time doesn't help with a 4-1 loss um but i will give them that little bit of little bit of credit yeah, yeah. i mean i mean there's lack of preparation time and there's just refusing to mark aerial threats <laughs> i want to just break from the the ranking for a minute james to, to ask you obviously you're you're in cologne you're in germany what's the reaction been like there because you know we've seen it from across the pond we've seen it internationally we've seen the kind of reaction has been a bit of a mixed bag but in the, on the whole it, it's been vaguely positive i think um as a kind of net gain or loss what what's it been like in germany are, are people glad the football is back or is is it still something that's very much like oh we're not sure about this I think my feelings were the same as many uh, this weekend in terms of the fact that the feelings were mixed. There, there was a, a, an element of enjoyment, the fact that the Bundesliga was back. There is a weight that comes with the fact that it's come back um, and the current situation the world is facing. Um, and it's, I mean, it's an interesting one because there are, there are, of course, there is a fence and there are two sides to it, as with everything in life. Um, the, DFL, the DFL, as I've said, have acknowledged the fact that it's not an ideal situation. And there have been some outspoken ultra groups who feel football is putting itself way ahead of society in many ways by coming back at, in this capacity when this is ongoing. And given the fact that there are health risks that could affect players um, and all it takes is, you know, in a very fragile situation, one one case to go wrong potentially. And, and their right to make their voices heard. Um, Germany and German football has always been a culture that is accepting of opposing voices um, and, and any and all uh, for the most part. Um, but if you ask the general population, they're all happy that football's back um, in this form, considering it's the alternative to no football at all. Um, and the DFL, let's be honest, have also done extensive work with uh, state and federal government officials, uh, medical officials as well, to put themselves in this privileged position. They also have obviously found themselves in this privileged position because Germany as a whole was largely positive in their response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and so I think it was um, Barney, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Rone, um, who said that Germany had, and, and the Bundesliga had earned this. I, I, I kind of see where he's coming from. I'm not quite 100% there on his argument. Um, but the fact is, everyone is, is glad it's back, but they are also accepting of the fact that this is obviously a very fragile situation. Um, and they know it can be taken away. Um, they know they're relying on you know, the 1,746 people that are regularly getting tested in Bundesliga and Bundesliga two circles that they are, you know, adhering to the protocols, behaving themselves. We've had a few incidents already. Uh, I'll be honest, the, the player one with Salomon Kalou did not surprise me. I, and maybe the fact that it was Salomon Kalou did based on his experience level and, and age and yeah. things like that. But I never thought a head coach would get wrapped up in it. And Heiko Herlich, I mean, he took the biscuit this weekend, so hats off to him. It yeah. was it was special. Toothpaste, of all things. Wow. 
He's at least tested. Uh, he's tested negative, uh, so that helps him a little bit there. Like, like no, no harm done is basically what it is. But yeah, um, on even the Bundesliga, turns out one of the head coaches can't even can't even take to the dugout. What a massive! Yeah, I don't. I don't often leave without brushing my teeth, so I can feel his hustle. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, right, so into the into the last couple, and these are these are more player focused. Um, so we're going to start with with basically Bundesliga fullback performances in general. I, were, I thought were exceptional over the course of the weekend, and a bit of a treasure trove really for fullbacks. But we're going to focus ending up on on one, which is Akraf Hakimi, uh, which may sound strange to you because obviously it was Rafael Guerrero, his left sided partner, who actually ended up scoring the two goals against against Schalke and and playing really well, but. Hakimi and Guerrero are basically like the Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andrew Robertson of the Bundesliga. They're, in terms of goal and assist contributions, they're over a combined 20, just like Trent and Robbo are two consecutive years. They're, they're so productive. They're so attacking. The system that Dortmund have employed since about November, which is the 3-4-3 the three, three with full-on wingbacks, has just allowed them to just pummel down the line and just cut inside and take chances and and cross and, and just just be wrecking balls really and Hakimi in particular starts to get the mind ticking because we all know that he's on the last legs of a loan deal from Real Madrid he's going to go back there this summer he's been quite outspoken and said if there's no role for me here like I'm gonna leave that me that put all the onus on him Hakimi you prove to us that you are good enough to play for Real Madrid well he's he's answered that question and then some because he's one of the best right backs in the world and now all of a sudden it's weird. It's like the audition switched around and the pressure's on Real Madrid to kind of prove to him that there's a big enough role in their team for him to play, for him to want to stay. I really genuinely feel like that. And you guys can correct me if that just feels grandiose, but it, for, for one of the first times ever, it, it kind of feels like Real Madrid have the proving to do to a, to a right back. Like it's mad, but that's how good he is. And he should be playing and starting for Real Madrid next summer, uh, next season. He, that's that's how good he is. And Real Madrid, you would have him over Carvajal. I would, I would, yeah. I think Carvajal's been an extremely, extremely good servant for them, a really steady player. And I'm not saying get him out of the club, but Real Madrid play a heavy kind of left-sided bias to their build-up play because it goes up through Hazard, through Marcelo and Ronaldo before, but now through Hazard, through Tony Kroos at left centre mid particularly, who just dictates everything, and Benzema pulls over to the left. It creates an absolute ton of space on the right-hand side. Any Real Madrid game has loads of space on the right flank. If you had a player like Hakimi dominating that area and running that flank and and getting those one-on-ones and using that space that all of that left-sided play builds and creates... He would do so much damage. It would be incredible. I agree with you for for what it's worth. But there's there's a point there that, you know, we've spent a long time criticising Real Madrid's defensive instabilities, if you will, right? We've spoken at length about how Marcelo is an unbelievable footballer, but slightly suspect at the back. How Sergio Ramos is an unbelievable footballer, but slightly suspect at the back. What you want to do is add Ashraf Hakimi to that. (laughs) <laughs> Mate, they're so much better this season defensively than they have been in the past. They've already made the adjustment. They can go back a little bit the other way. Because look, Real Madrid have been actually really difficult to play against this season. And they've lost a bit of that, that flair and, 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 and that pizzazz in the attack. And they don't beat teams by two or three goals as often as they used to. And look, it's fine. They're in the title race. They were, they were kind of outclassed by City in the Champions League. Let's, let's, make, let's be honest. And that really showed that they are at a 7 or 8 out of 10 level, they're no longer at their 10 out of 10 level. 
you probably have to go a little bit back the other way. And it's not as if Hakimi's a terrible defender. I mean, he's playing wing back right now, so obviously he's really attacking and he would have to adjust. But I can just see the way that formation tilts and the way they build play. Hakimi getting into... It kind of reminds me of like when Inter Milan used to build down the left and then just cross it to Maicon and he just used to thunder down the right-hand side and just cause all sorts of damage. I think he could be a Maicon-like presence for Real Madrid. I, I agree with you. I mean, like I'm a big fan of Hakimi's. I, I do think he's he's without a doubt one of the best right wing backs. And I think that's kind of where Jack's kind of alluding to. And you could you know say the same for Guerrero, actually. I think Dortmund's system caters to them. And so right now, Dortmund are having a really good recruitment drive with Hakimi because they're giving him this really important role on the right wing. He doesn't actually have to defend as much as he would maybe be forced to as a, as a right back. He's got the protection of Lukas Piszczek and his level head behind him, which is so valuable to him. Um, and because of that, Dortmund are making a very attractive proposition to Hakimi to say, hey, look, you're, you're nailed on. You're in our team. Like, let's, let's keep you around for a while. If you go back to Real Madrid, you're right. You're going to have to deal with Danny Carvajal. And the coach may not want to make that choice straight away. But you've got my full faith. I'm Lucien Favre. Like, that, that's the recruitment drive they're making. And it's they're making a really strong pitch right now. And Real Madrid do have to be worried because he is a, a big talent. And I like the points you're making, Sam, because for me, he then sounds like the natural progression when Marcelo maybe leaves or hangs up his boots which is around the corner that you switch the formation you switch the sides and then Hakimi is the one driving down and maybe the left back becomes more inclined to to shore things up a little bit and well they're already there like Fernand Mendy is he is more defensive like he's way more able defensively than Marcelo is so they have already kind of made that adjustment as you say True. and they're all they're all sort of pitching him to it right now I mean I feel like I need to throw my hat to the ring Hakimi come play for my five-a-side team I'll give you all the space down the right-hand side no problem it's going to be a pitch fest for for Hakimi like everyone wants him to play for them and it's it's in Real Madrid's hands and they just need to not mess it up and I mean it's, it, we've, it, you can go a lot into this because it's one of those situations with the coronavirus pandemic how is that loan market going to pan out how are these loan deals that are shortly going to run out really work out where are the extensions going to be are Real Madrid going to throw down the clock let's say we have another break in the Bundesliga for a couple of weeks because one too many teams go into quarantine and it goes beyond the loan deal to then Dortmund not have Hakimi on the last day of the season when maybe the title is up for grabs if we've really been lucky this season. You know, it's it's a really interesting thing. That's maybe a treasure trove we shouldn't open too much. <laughs> but you've mentioned, dangerous mentioned, game guessing. <laughs> we mentioned Guerrero there and he's a completely different player in, in many ways because obviously I don't think he can... I still don't really think he can play left back very well because he needs to play... Uh, he needs to play with a lot of freedom and... I don't know what his position is outside of wingback. So I don't think he could move to a different team and replicate a level anywhere close to what he does right now, unless he was given specifically a wingback role. Can go inside, can go outside, can come into central midfield, can overlap. Don't ask him to defend too much. He's an even more intriguing player tactically. Again, this is this, this Trent Alexander-Arnold Robertson dynamic, where Guerrero is actually Trent because he can move inside, he can pass like a midfielder, he can overlap. And Hakimi is Robertson, just like relentless running down the flank, up and down, and just carrying an entire side. The, the, it's an interesting one you say there, because I thought something that was, was added to that is that Guerrero could go to Inter, because the left wing back situation for Conte has been a slight mistake. Biragi hasn't really worked out there, the whole deal. I think he's going to end up back at Fiorentina. There's all of that. But I don't think you swap Dortmund for Inter. I, no. I, I don't think that that's a, a career move that 
you'd really need to do. He's comfortable. He's settled. He clearly has the faith of the team now. Obviously, they brought in Nico Schultz in the, in the summer, and that whole thing went down badly. That hasn't worked out. And, and you know, he's really sort of been, been so crucial this season. You, you look at his goal contributions, like you said, Sam, and he just really does absolutely bomb up and down that flank. But it's interesting because... Like you say, I don't know where he fits unless he's a left wing back. And that puts him in an international quandary because Portugal don't have any centre-backs. So they definitely can't play with three at the back. They can barely play with two at the back. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's one of those moments where you have to kind of work out, if you're Rafa Guerrero, whether you want to be a wing back and be this absolute dynamic presence, but probably not play for your country. Or you try and redefine your game around something yeah. else and it, it leaves him in a in a funny position but I think that he's good at Dortmund I can't see him going anywhere yeah oh absolutely it's, it's an interesting dynamic for sure and, and Guerrero I think Hakimi fits into a lot of different positions but Guerrero is a very specific player and uh, he needs everything to be set right for him to be to, to get to his top, highest level as he's showing at the moment I'll move it on to our final takeaway and this is um you know it's, this is not news to, to, to Bundesliga followers, but some people who were tuning in at the weekend or specifically on Monday were maybe taken aback by just how good Kai Havertz is. He's definitely not a secret in, in Germany. And we talk about him a lot. Uh, I call him King Kai. Jack calls him uh, the crown prince. Uh, we've all, <laughs> we all say very nice things about him. But what really struck on Monday night was Leverkusen turned up in Bremen and, and, and they played Kai Havertz as the striker, which he's done a little bit before the coronavirus pause. He played in the Europa League and the Bundesliga as the striker. He's also played on the wing. He's played as an eight. He's played, as a, he's played all sorts of roles. And his, his development has been complete over the last year or so. And watching him play as a withdrawn forward um, last night, I know Bremen were not very good defensively, but I couldn't help but think he just ticked off the last few boxes of his development. And I just don't think there's anything he can't really do. Like if he's now playing up front, scoring headers, you know, out jumping people at set pieces, as well as dropping in, linking play, playing wonderfully cute passes, turning on a sixpence. He's got the range. He's got the vision. He's got the dribbling ability. He's got the finishing ability. He scores all like most weeks now. What is there that this man can't do? And has he now morphed into a Roberto Firmino and Karim Benzema style forward? which is the rarest type of forward, the false nine, the gold dust, the withdrawn guy who can link, play with two direct wingers either side of him, your Salah and your Mane, or before that, Ronaldo and Bale. And then, and then you, get, you take it on again, you're like, hang on a minute, like this is, this, Liverpool need him more than they need Timo Werner because they need that Firmino replacement or alternate. And he, I actually think Kai Havertz could play for any club in the world at this point in about four different positions. But specifically, he's starting to show traits and an ability that is so rare among forwards that makes him just the, just the most almighty of prize in the transfer market if he goes, I think. It's really interesting that you say that, Sam, because I was watching last night's game and he's been linked. I, I, I'm a Liverpool fan. I'll put that out there. Um, but he's been linked with us for a, for a while and I actually had initially taken the stance of no. I don't think we're the right club for Kai Havertz. I think his style of play is slightly more, it's, a, it's, it's slightly slower. He's got a, he's got a grace to him um, about his game. I, I've always kind of looked at him as, if you were to put Michael Balak and Mesut Ozil on a spectrum, Kai Havertz <laughs> is somewhere on that spectrum, more towards the Mesut Ozil side, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I know a strange way of maybe looking at it. I get it, <laughs> but that's that's kind of always the way I've looked at it because he's got this physical presence that I don't think Mesut Özil did, um, but the technical ability and his development under Peter Boss I, has been spectacular. You are right. And given his age, um, the fact that he's still only 20 is ridiculous. And I do think it's one of those moments in a player's career where he found the perfect head coach for him, working in tight spaces, in a, in a fast-flowing, at times, penetrative uh, possession game. Um, all of those things really speak to his qualities. But then last night, I watched him play against Bremen and I went, you know what, I, he does remind me of Roberto Firmino. Um, back in the day when he was at Hoffenheim and he was doing the exact same things in the 10. And I went, oh no, his 10, 10 is 100% his best position. And now I've watched him blossom at Liverpool in a way that, I'll be honest, I was one of his biggest fans. I was working for the Hoffenheim website back in the day when he first signed for the club. I remember writing the translation of his transfer to Hoffenheim and watching him and, and, and talking on a podcast that I used to do, Talking Fußball, that is still going, um, but under new stewardship. Um, and... I remember talking about Roberto Firmino and, and really saying that I know there's flashes of brilliance in there and it's not consistent enough, but it will come. And Kai Havertz is, is so ahead of that trend and, and that curve that Firmino was on uh, already. And he is so exciting. I've got one of his kits uh, behind me because I bought it as a commemoration of this Champions League season when I was following them for UEFA. Um, and I got the chance to interview him. And he was the first to say, admittedly, that 10 is his position. He wants to be in the 10. And it's going to take someone like Peter Boss to work with him and maybe convince him, hold on a second, can do um, game that it wasn't his best game um, and I thought that was an interesting insight because there were moments I think especially in the opening where he wasn't as influential as we know he can be but he yeah. got there in the end um, the, the whole first 15 minutes of that game were a total mess though like well, everyone yeah. everyone's passes were being misplaced they were just passing it out of play all of it all of Havertz's flicks um, were we went wrong. They missed people. He tried to loop it over somebody. It just hit them in the head. But everybody was bad. And then Leverkusen went, hang on a minute, I know how to play football. And Bremen never did, to be fair. They never figured it out. But it only uh, took 15 minutes for that shot. Season, which is the, problem. <laughs> the sharpness came back. And as soon as that happened, Havertz was, Havertz was in. And it was unstoppable. And yeah, just, just, just dropping in off that forward line and just one touch layoffs left and right with the, with the midfield runner then spinning and going and getting on the end of the cross and getting into the box and scoring it just it's, it's a complete forward set I was going to that was going to be the point I was going to add Sam that can do that was going to be the point I was going to add I was going to say that I don't think that there's a more complete young player in Europe and to be honest I think you'd struggle with naming a couple more complete players full stop in Europe he, he's that good already and he's just got the potential I mean you know, you said at the start, I call him the crown prince. There's a reason for that. I think he's like very much going to the absolute top of this game. I don't think that there's going to be anyone. If he continues on the trajectory that he's on, then Kai Havertz is going to win multiple Ballon d'Ors. It's that kind of level. Yeah, uh, maybe. We're maybe. talking about here. I think he's that good. Um, but, you know, like you say, James, it's, it's one of those ones where at first you were like oh maybe he wouldn't fit at this club and, and I was talking about this with uh, Harry Brooks who has been on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was saying Barcelona need him Barcelona need desperately someone to run in behind for someone to to be able to drop off and then spin in the back and and I was like yeah they do but also so do Real Madrid and Liverpool and Chelsea and Man United and Man City and you know every other massive club in Europe everybody needs Kai Havertz because Kai Havertz is that good yeah, and I, I fully agree. I think if he goes to any team, he's going to be fantastic. But I do think the next move will be so important for him because it could be the difference between him being an elite player or a multiple Ballon d'Or winner because he does have that potential. And I think 
Um, something that has struck me, we talk about all his technical abilities on the pitch and, and they are abundant. And I was really pleased for him that he showed his, his true colours yesterday when I don't think he really had the best of times in the Champions League when more eyes would have been on him. Whereas this time the eyes of the world were on him and he did perform, admittedly, against Bremen. Pinch of salt will take it. Um, but the thing that really strikes me is his composure. And I talk about that both on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, his mental fortitude seems to be extraordinary in terms of his ability to keep his feet on the ground. This was a player that, as a teenager, set a record last season by scoring 17 goals in the campaign. He then had a tough first half of the season in terms of his goal-scoring goal output and even his goal involvement. He was finding his feet in a very different way where it was a case of pulling the strings without feeling the need to always be the person to make the final pass or be the difference maker in that final moment and he had to find that nuance to his game and he did that but he came under a lot of criticism because the numbers looked bad and now he's come in in 2020 he's had a hand in 16 goals um, which is the most of any Bundesliga player the, the kid is extraordinary and the ceiling is it's hard to find where the ceiling is right now because he's got such a long career ahead of him it can go so many ways but the ceiling is is going to be a high one without doubt how have you found him dealing with him and interviewing him and, and just, just seeing him, you know, his comments in the media and how he's dealt with people? Shy. Um, he genuinely struck me as quite timid and shy when I interviewed him. And I, what's funny is I was nervous to interview him because I'm a big fan of his. And it was like one of those <laughs> moments where you don't want to get too starstruck as the reporter. You've got a job to do. But I was like, oh, I, I'd waited. <laughs> I'd waited hoping with the Champions League because as a UEFA reporter, you only go to the home games. And I'd waited for a big home performance and it didn't quite happen. And I was a bit disappointed, but I still grabbed him after the final game against Juventus because I wanted to get his thoughts on, on the, the whole group stages. And he was, he was, he was nice enough to take time despite the 2-0 the loss to talk to me. Um, and yeah, he was, he was, he was humble, very, you know, just, he seemed to be very well rooted, um, have a really good head on his shoulders and wasn't getting ahead of himself. Um, admitted that he hadn't had the best of times in the Champions League, admitted that he hadn't reached necessarily the, the standards he wanted to set in those group stages and have the influence that he knows he can have. He said he felt he had it in moments, but not consistently enough. And that would have been my takeaway from it too. So to hear him say that as a 20-year-old and have that awareness of himself, and as I say, to have the mental fortitude to maybe deal with what has been a, a, you know, a, a pretty bright spotlight and some of the criticism that's come with it because of his form in the first half of the season. He ticks so many boxes. This question now, like, this is typically Bayern Munich territory, isn't it? Exceptional young player at club not named Bayern Munich, but play in Germany. Bayern, this is their area. This is, you know, we've seen this how many times before. This is Leon Goretzka. This is Alexander Nubel. This is every player that Bayern ever buy. Um, and I think about a year ago, if he'd have gone last summer, Bayern was the only spot for him. But Bayern have played a bit of a dicey game here because he's got so much better so much become so much more complete a bit of a cash shortage due to the coronavirus may impact them and they're obviously going head over heels for Leroy Sané having missed that one from Schalke four years or four or five years ago and as Havertz gets better and better Bayern Munich and Real Madrid they just come into this equation and for the first time in a while I'm starting to see a, a reality a future reality where Kai Havertz doesn't play for Bayern he plays for somebody else and it's Genuinely takes quite a, quite a lot to get to that point because by Munich, by these players. Lucio, Zay Roberto, uh, Michael Balak back in the day, like they, they carved that part of uh, that team apart after their Champions League loss to, to Real Madrid or in the seasons after that. And, and that was this, you know, certainly part of the trend that has developed with Bayern. I also, like you, Sam, hope that there is a future where Kai Havertz does not just jump on 
board to buy in now. And again, it's with the situation we're in. I am so intrigued to how a young player like Harvards is thinking. Is this the time to be making a massive move when there's so much uncertainty in the world and we don't really know how things are going to progress? Again, he's 20 years old. He is in no rush whatsoever. He has an elite career ahead of him. And Leverkusen right now are, again, like Hakimi with Dortmund, Leverkusen are making a quite good pitch to him to say, we're really going places with you. One more season. Let everything calm down in the world. Maybe there's a vaccine by now. I don't know how they're convincing him, but he was going for, you know, if you believe Peter Boss, over 100 million. And I think he you know, probably wouldn't be far off on his estimates, whether that's still the case and whether then Leverkusen need to sell if the, if the price has been dropped. Again, all these factors that come into it with him. Yeah. And I would hope that with this level head on him, that he may just stay for at least one more season. And then I think the landscape changes. Um, and I would then, I do think Spain, I think Italy in terms of the pace of the game would be a really good fit for him. But I think he could have a fantastic career in Spain, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah. I think he, we saw him with the armband yesterday and I was like, that stinks of a club trying to keep him, doesn't it? And it, it's just one of those ones you're like, Oh, you've given your silky young technical player the captain's armband, have you? Okay, cool, fair enough. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. And they mentioned yesterday that Balak has been in touch and obviously deep roots of the club and all those things, but saying, look, give it another year. You, you don't need to rush this. It's completely all right. We're on the hunt of a you know, Champions League spot again. We're probably the best place team, I think, in the Europa League. It, it, as far as I'm concerned, to win it, I think that that could be a real one. And semi-finals of the Cup. You know, they're, they're on for a hell of a season, Leverkusen, and there's nothing to say that that can't carry on, especially given the stewardship that the boss is there. And we talked about him on, on last week's podcast and how it all kind of fell apart at Dortmund, and yet he seems to have gone just doubled down. He'd be like, that's no, fine, don't worry about it. I just, I just go even more hell for leather, and hopefully it'll work. But you got taps over at the back you can do that so he's, a, he's an absolute he's an absolute madman peter boss i i've interviewed him a couple of times this season and he was again a delight to talk to but he comes across as a, he's very intense very intense and i can imagine that as players is quite interesting but yeah his, his approach he really is with his back line it's the case of oh i'm just going to rely on individual brilliance he thought he had that with yonatan tar and then yonatan tar proved to be pretty error prone which didn't work out so well taps over though brilliant signing brilliant signing. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Aaron Geese does a insane. lot of uh he does a lot of lifting in as Aaron Geese and, and taps over between them. They put out seven out of eight fires and the, the other fire is a goal. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Is that the end of your, your list, Sam? That is Where it. That's all the takeaways I've got. Fair enough. Well, in that case, it's uh, probably time to wrap this one up. Um, but James, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Guys, it was, it was a real pleasure to talk about uh, a league that I love and, and you guys do a fantastic job with your podcast, so keep it up. I'm a big fan on this side of things and happy to come on again if you need me. Thank you, James. Absolutely. Do you want to just quickly give the Rank Squad how they can follow you on social? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I guess the best way would be on Twitter at JM Thorogood. I'll be honest, I'm not, uh, I'm not the most active, um, but I'm on there every now and again, so you can get me there. And you would listen Thank to his voice now on the World Feed for Bundesliga stuff. Listen out. You know his voice very well now. You won't mistake it. I should say that, yeah, because of course you guys are going out to uh, you know pretty mostly American audience, right? So yeah, they yeah. they they can join me this weekend for the Berlin derby, uh, and I'll also have the pleasure of doing Mainz against Leipzig on Sunday. So I got two games this weekend, two very good games, ones that I'm looking forward to. Uh, so they can tune in uh, on their broadcasters of choice. All right, well, thank you so much to James for joining us. That was as ever an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for listening to us. All that's left for me to do is say thank you so much to Sam Tai. Thank you, mate. It's been fun as ever. And make sure that you get us at the weekend. If you've 
got this far and you've enjoyed the podcast this much, I'm sure you will enjoy Sam and I doing our best on commentary at the weekend. Make sure you download the Hot Mic app. We'll give you a code. It will probably be ranks and you will be able to download the app with that. It will feed you into Sam and I and hopefully we can all watch Gladbach Leverkusen together and have a damn good time while we do it. This has been VR Football Ranks. I've been Jack Collins. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Peace.